Hey everyone, welcome to the Product Startup Podcast, a podcast that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product designers, and other industry professionals. This podcast is run by Macro Design and Invent and hosted by Philip Belecha. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to putting your product on the shelf. We're taking you step-by-step step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Now onto the show. This is not for the weak-hearted out there. I mean, last big hit I had, we got our first big royalty check right after my wife told me, we just used up our last credit line and our last credit card. So, you know, this is not for everybody. (laughs) This can wear you down. But for me, for me to have a situation where I don't have to ask anyone's permission to produce a product, I don't have to ask anyone's permission to do the best job I can, I have total creative independence and financially when it works, the financial independence, it really, it really changes your life. This is the product startup episode 25. Welcome to the product startup podcast, helping you turn ideas into successful products step-by-step with your host, Philip Belitza. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Startup Podcast. In the last episode, we talked with Terry Lynn, the founder of Forever Home Blankets. The company sells high-quality blankets for people to use at home or around the office or on the road. And for every blanket he sells, one is donated to an animal shelter in need. Terry raised $3,500 on Kickstarter to get the first batch of inventory in Vietnam. And we get into some of the other businesses that he had before Forever Home Blankets and find out why they didn't succeed. So make sure to check out episode 24. So make sure to check out episode 24 if you haven't heard it yet. And now on to today's show. I'm joined by Robson Splain. He created the ProRise Seat Assist. Robson is an industrial designer who has over 30 years experience in design with about 70 national patents and 20 international patents to his name. During the interview, we really talk about how he developed the ProRise Seat Assist, which allows senior citizens, wounded veterans, and post-surgical individuals to rise from their seats independently. So let's get started. Hi, Robson. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. So please tell everybody a little bit about your experience, particular your skill set with design. Well, my background's in industrial design, which is really a terrible name for a really great profession. Uh, people hear industrial design, they think you design factories or something. Right. Uh, but in fact, what it really is about, it's almost as if you took an engineer, a sculptor, and an inventor and kind of mashed them together and add a little bit of marketer to it. And uh, we just to avoid confusion, we often refer to ourselves as architects for things instead of buildings. Yeah, that's what an a, architect would, would do for a building, we would we would do for a product or you know an object. That's a very good description. Definitely the creative side of design and how people use and interact with things. It's it's a I love doing what we do. It's a lot of fun. So tell everybody a little bit about your experience with that. What kind of products have you worked on in the past? Oh my gosh. Uh, well, we we had a, uh, a design consulting firm for many years. I mean, I started um, as a uh, freelancer in what they used to call hired gun. You'd, you'd basically go from studio to studio and they'd, they'd pay you to create designs for them. Uh, I also worked as a staff designer for a, a big industrial design firm that had offices all over the world. And uh, really had a good time. I was a professor at three universities teaching this area. And uh, but 
as a lot of designers, I ended up opening my own consultancy and we had two offices north of Los Angeles. And uh, we're kind of, I don't want to say designers are prostitutes, but we'll, we'll work on almost anything. Right. <laughs> so we've worked on everything from toys to robotic uh, medical devices. Uh, we've done marine and aircraft interiors, uh, lots of fitness rehab, medical, uh, it kind of runs the gamut. It, it doesn't really matter to us what the subject is because we're going to basically apply the same methodology to most any project that we take on. That's a very good point. And what I'd like to do is maybe you can talk about your newest product, the ProRise, which is something that helps people get in and out of their seat. And maybe you can discuss how you developed it from maybe from cradle to the grave. Going back to our consulting days, um, I should kind of preface this if it's not too long. We came to realize that we made our clients a lot of money. The products that we worked on, you know, oftentimes were very successful. And as an industrial designer and consultant, you can make a living, you can make a nice living, but you're, you're really not going to realize that kind of uh, financial independence consulting. So what we decided to do was to reinvent ourselves some years ago. And we started developing our own products that we owned. <clears throat> and we eventually took them to the infomercial world. Mm -hmm. And in the info infomercial world, um, which is also referred to as DR, direct response, uh, we actually were very fortunate. We worked with some great people. Um, we did well at it. But as the DR world grew, it became more and more difficult to cut a deal that was worthwhile for designers. It was just, uh, it took too long. It was uh, too kind of cutthroat. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like watching Shark Tank on steroids. Sure. I've heard some of the deals that people make on those types of shows are pretty ruthless, you know, 50, 60% margin. <laughs> well, and I've worked with some of those people who are on the show, the, the, the uh, investors. Mm. <clears throat> and, you know, they're trying to put their best face on at that time. They're on TV, but it can be very ruthless. And, you know, for that reason and others, we decided to uh, leave the area. Ironically, we ended up with about, I would say, three or four of the really good companies that basically came back to us after we were saying we're, we're leaving infomercial. <clears throat> and they said, look, we know you have a lot of inventory of products. And if you don't cut us off, you know, we'll, we'll cut you the deals that you want. Uh, and if I'd known playing hard to get was so successful, I would have done it years ago. But at that point, we'd already decided to roll out our own products. I'd been in manufacturing before and we had a, um, negotiation going on for a product that a company, one of the big companies really wanted. And we negotiated for a year and a half. Wow. And at the end of, yeah, it was a long time. And at the end of that time, we just said, look, if we sell 10% of what you would sell, we're going to make a lot more money than if we license to you. And we're not going to do the deal. So what we decided to do was to create a new kind of company. And that company was a, an innovation slash TV marketing and e-commerce company, which actually would also do regular and traditional uh, wholesaling. Mm -hmm. So having come away from the DR market with a lot of inventory, our attorney actually made us create a spreadsheet for him of the products that we had that were far enough along to either license or roll out for manufacture. And the list included over 40 products. And that's a lot of money for us. 
to have invested in to leave it sitting there. Right. So we decided to come up with a new business model. And that business model had to do with the fact that a lot of creative people are very good at what they do, but they're not necessarily good business people. The exception to that might be engineers, but I would say you know, inventors, designers, sculptors, lots of different kinds of innovators are very good at what they do, but they seem to have kind of a different personality and skill sets from the people who are good at running businesses. Sure, they're really into their art. They connect with that. That's their passion. They, they, it's absolutely true. And they tend to be kind of different personalities. So what we decided to do was to basically enlist uh, business professionals to come on board and work with us. And over a certain period of time, they would actually own part of the company. But as the designers and the founders of the company, we actually own the company. <clears throat> because what often happens in these situations is the designer ends up working for the marketing genius. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what we did was we looked at the products that we had. And we went and we researched markets that did well, even during the meltdown of 2008. And these were products that just weren't, they weren't just holding their own. They actually were flourishing. And we identified about seven markets that were growing during the meltdown and which we had products for. And so our plan was to start with one market at a time and start rolling out products under our own name, which our company name is, is called Riseability. And um, what we looked at of the seven different markets was one extraordinary market, which is products which are both rehab, wellness, and assistive products for the aging baby boomers. And we were shocked to realize there was a demographic that was like nothing you've ever seen in the history of mankind. I mean, right now, my understanding is there are over 100 million people in the United States over 50. Yeah, it's um, one of the largest growing uh, segments of the population for sure. Absolutely. And in the next couple of three decades, there will be countries that have populations nearing or exceeding age 65, well, which will have aging populations of about 40% or even greater. This has never, ever happened. Wow. Um, there are countries that are saying there literally are not going to be enough nursing homes for all the older people. Countries like Japan, Germany, Italy, um, China is going to have a huge problem and there really have to be products that allow these people to remain in their homes as long as possible and kind of give them some dignity and some, some independent living. You touched on one point where you said dignity because a lot of the products that are on the market today are very industrial. They're, I would say, function over form in a sense that they're trying to make it for the cheapest cost as possible because, you know, it was maybe a product that was purchased through Medicare or something like that. And maybe in the past, after, you know, World War II, a lot of the development for that what was kind of put on the back burner to where it was just something that needed to get you through the day. And it wasn't something that, that brought you joy or, or happiness or, you know, the, the, where the form was pleasing. No, that's absolutely true. And for me, it was a little bit more personal. Um, I used to be a climber and I'd taken a couple of falls without a rope. And uh, at the time I, I thought I'd pretty much healed and I then taught martial arts for 19 years. Mm. So the amount of wear and tear I experienced <laughs> yeah. was kind of extreme. So I got to a point where, you know, my knees were kind of not in great shape. I had a compacted spine, but I also had uh, an artificial hip put in. And as I was recovering from my hip surgery, I bought a seat assist. 
It was a product that in one form or another had been on the market literally for decades. Right. I was appalled. It absolutely did not work. It didn't even start to help me until I was almost standing up. Yeah, and most of them don't even have uh, handles that um, you can grab to help you get that additional leverage. No, and on top of it, if you, I, I'm not a small person. You know, I'm, I'm over six feet tall, and um, I needed to crank up the power on the device. And when you do that, it actually lessens the number of degrees that it lifts you. Hmm. So you just kind of, you can't win. And the amount of aid it gave me was negligible. And that, and it didn't really give me anything until, like I said, I was almost standing. Yeah. I just was incredulous that somebody could have been selling this product for years. In fact, there's another seat assist on the market that claims to help you. It's literally a wedge of foam. You sit on this foam wedge and supposedly the foam expanding as you stand up helps you stand up. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's yeah. ludicrous. Yeah. So having been involved with over 300 medical rehab and, and fitness products, I thought, you know, this is something maybe I should, I should do something about. So we came up with a, co- a product that uh, we call the Pro Rise. And we probably built, oh gosh, <clears throat> probably 20 prototypes before we started refining our final design, which is probably another 15 models, prototypes. And the kind of ironic thing and the nice thing about it was that our best solution ended up being the simplest solution. And what I mean by that was we tried motors and we had pneumatic pistons, we had springs, we had all this falderall. What we really came up with something that uses fulcrum points that move and leverages so that it can lift 100% of your weight. I can literally lift my feet off the ground and lift myself up. And the more I weigh, the more it lifts, folds down flat, and it's portable. I mean, it's not going to, you know, there are are motorized chairs out there that you can buy that will very slowly lift you up, but they're expensive. Right. They're not portable. And um, so we felt we'd hit a home run and that we had the first of maybe 15 products that would help wounded warriors, the senior population. We've demonstrated these in school systems for exceptional children who have, in some cases, severe handicaps in motion. And there's this huge population that are looking for some independence. And that's where that's where it came from. And it, it evolved from there. Well, Robson, so you touched on a few things that I want to dive into a little bit deeper. You know, you mentioned that you iterated the design a lot and created a bunch of prototypes. And I don't think you can stress that enough because uh, in my job as an engineer, we do that constantly. And I think people have this impression that you create a prototype and there's this linear path to then the next step is creating the design and then going out to manufacture. But in reality, it's really iterative where you're trying to get that feedback and really trying to tweak things. Can you kind of dive into that a bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have solid modeling computers here in our studio. We have 3D printers, but we would die without our shop. Yep. Yep. I mean, our shop we have, I mean, we're, we're fortunate. It's not huge. But we have milling machines and engine lathes. We have a you know, wood shop. We have a plastics area where we can mold plastic parts. We even have our own forge. Nice. We can do onesie twosies of almost anything. But even with a great computer program and even 3D printers, you know, if I, I can't, if I can't feel it, if it's something that has to fit the body, 
I can't, I can't feel that on a computer screen. And even if I'm going to go sell the product or license the product, what we often do, and we can put, you know, we can create computer renderings that look like photographs. But if we go in for a meeting for funding or we go in for a meeting uh, to license a product, you know, basically they, they can sit there at the meeting and say, well, that's a beautiful rendering, but it, does it work? So whenever we have a meeting, we always have, you know, a rendering what it's going to look like. But we have a model that absolutely works. So there's no doubt that we're on the right path. And sometimes that takes a lot of iterations. And for us, I kind of, I like Japanese and Scandinavian design. I like simple. Right. Yep. And a lot of times, yeah, a lot of times we do a lot of work to get to simple. It's, it's actually in some cases more work. Yeah, I would have written a shorter letter if I had more time. <laughs> and I totally agree with you there because it just you start having to take pieces off what you created and try to combine parts and it, you're able to really reduce cost and simplify things and make it easier to maintain and to manufacture and for the consumer to use even. So while we're talking about creating functional prototypes, um, you know, people will always ask me, where can I find a investor that will buy off on my idea? And my advice to them is that you need to take your idea as far as you can to de-risk it for that investor because they're not investing in the idea, they're investing in that execution. And so, it, again, in my opinion, it's about you know maybe taking it all the way to creating a functional prototype and and testing some of the market so you can have something to present to them what are your uh, your thoughts on that it's indispensable it's indispensable not you know having a model just you cannot beat it i mean i've been in meetings for licensing where um and i unfortunately had to learn a hard lesson that was that at these meetings they've got the head of the company there they may have the head of marketing but they also may have their engineer who's head of manufacturing. And I remember one time we came in and we showed this great rendering. And uh, I said, this looks great. But the, the engineer basically looked at it and said, that won't work. And what I learned was I should have reversed my presentation because we then pulled out a prototype and said, here's the prototype. Yeah, it works. Try it. Well, that was great in one respect, but in another respect, we just made an enemy. <laughs> right. We did not make him look good in front of his, in front of his bosses. And, you know, our goal is not to make anyone feel bad or look bad. So uh, what we generally do is, you know, we'll show the working model as early as we can. In fact, what we do now, more often than not, is uh, in-house, we actually make our own TV commercial. And, you know, we talk about, the need for the product. We talk about what the product does. We have videotapes that are being used. And it's been a great tool for us because instead of me taking a flight to New York or Beijing, I can literally put that video on a, our website with a, a password. I can have, I can call the people at the other end of the world, say, okay, log in, here's your password, watch the video while I'm online. And we can have a meeting without me ever getting on the, onto an aircraft. That's a really great tip. I think anybody could take something away from that is to try to, you know, we hear a lot about uh, cut sheets and sell sheets that people use to, um, you know, get their licensing deals. But I think the video is just the logical next step where you're able to show your product in action if you've been able to, to get your prototype to that point. And I guess what you're saying is that you absolutely need to get it as far as you can. Absolutely, as far as you can. Yep. And I think also, and I think you'd agree with me on this, 
you know, in my case, you know, we're good at what we do, but my all, all of my degrees, they're not in business. They're in, you know, industrial design and related areas. So for us to be able to put together a team that have a really experienced CEO and a, a you know, highly experienced marketing person, you know, a lot of people want to see what the team is as well. And for us, that's been a, a really important uh, a factor. Yeah, and you can see that a lot on some of the crowdfunding campaigns where the ones that are the most successful have really good teams and they talk about the the heritage of everybody and what products they've worked on before and why this product is going to be successful and why you can bank on them. Because really that's what the investor is buying into is the, the team because right now you don't have a product that's generating revenue. It's just the thought of one or you know, you've, you've created a prototype but you haven't really uh, created any uh, revenue yet. Yeah, I mean, it's basically you're building confidence. I mean, right. I, I recently had to upgrade my 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 resume, my brief bio, and one one of the reasons I had to do it because I I kind of it's it's a little difficult for me to kind of toot my own horn. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. But you know, you have to come to realize, and not, you know, I've had resumes like that for decades. I mean, I've been at this a long time, and I had to realize, look, I'm not doing them any favors by holding back information and, and achievements. And so I only just recently rewrote it. And I think it makes a big difference. Yeah. So to maybe dive into that a little bit. Did you just highlight some of your business experience or your experience uh, taking products to market? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, um, we have a, I have funded this, this project, this new company for the last three years. Um, and I mean, that's staffing and licenses and I mean, just everything. Uh, but I don't have the I don't have <clears throat> the uh, funds to take it to TV, which is one of our goals, because mm -hmm. we can grow the company so fast by by taking it to DR. And um, talking to a a broker who's helping us with one of our potential investors, and what he asked us to do, he, he said, "Look, would you add to your resume some of the products that you had?" At one time, we had three hits on TV all at the same time. He said, would you actually list those products and tell them a little bit about the kind of money they made? Mm. And I did that for him. And um, I talked to him recently. And he said, I've got a big investor in the Midwest who normally doesn't invest in projects as small as yours. Not asking enough money makes you not very <laughs> attractive to a lot of the investors. And yet, once he looked at the kind of money we have been capable of making in the past, I guess he decided, I want to meet with these guys anyway. And if I hadn't done that, I don't think we'd be having the meeting. Oh, great advice. You, you touched on these licensing deals. Can you describe how much of the product has to be protected before you go into the licensing deal? Because I've heard both sides. As an engineer, I've only worked on licensing deals that have uh, IP, that have uh, patent-protected products. And and to me, it seems a bit foreign that a company would pay you a royalty for a, a product that isn't protected in some way. But I've definitely heard of those offers out there. So can you kind of dive into that a bit? Yeah, there's kind of two sides to that coin. One is that... Yes, we always protect it with at least a provisional. Okay, we have enough of a reputation or enough of a track record that we can actually get a lot of companies to sign a non-disclosure with us, mm -hmm. where 
it'll have the normal terms, but it'll also say, look, you won't reverse engineer us. And it'll include the term that if you have a product like this, show it to us within 10 days. Don't come back, you know, six months after we've rolled the product out and say, oh, we had the same idea a week before you did. <laughs> right. Um, that said, though, um, there are several factors involved in what you're talking about. I think a lot of companies, especially in, in the infomercial world, A, with having 40 products, for me to be supporting the maintenance fees on 40 products, let alone the application fees, we're talking a fortune. Mm -hmm. The companies often don't want you burning the life of that patent. If I've spent several years cutting a deal, that's several years that the patent is idle. Is is idle and and mm -hmm. not not working for us, right? Right. But the flip side of it is this: is that once I have a patent, once I filed for patent after a year in the United States, I can't file anywhere else in the world. And so a lot of the companies that I deal with, they don't want me getting in their way. If I have a provisional and we have a good, especially if we have a good non-disclosure on top of it, they would rather be able to go and file a patent in the United States, Japan, China, you know, Italy, England, France, Germany. And if I've already done that and I can only afford the U.S., yeah, then you've, I've just yeah. shot down their ability to get any of those other patents. You've stunted growth pretty much. Pretty much. So we do, we, we, we do take out PTCs, which give us like another 18 months to file foreign. Um, but usually we, we usually just go in with a provisional or a patent pending. The takeaway, though, there is that you're still protecting your idea in some way. It's not, you're not just going off of your relationship and assuming that people are going to be nice and, uh, and not take your ideas and run with them. Um, no. Provisional patent applications are great. I, I advise everyone to do them if they feel like they're going to go the patenting route just because it's so cost effective to get that one year of protection. And hopefully within that year, uh, like you said, the market is going to basically pay for your patent, full patent application. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, and it's their responsibility to maintain the patent as long as they're making the product. So does that mean that you sign over rights to the patent to them and, and you're not the inventor anymore? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Those patents, are, those patents are taken out in my name and um, we technically own them, but they have exclusive rights to uh, commercialize and sell the product. And once they have stopped doing that, it reverts to me. Nice. So you have some clauses in there that say if you haven't commercialized this in X amount of time, um, we get it back. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, if they have commercialized it for several years and they, they cease production, we get it back. Great tips. So let's move into manufacturing. You know, you said you've created this functional prototype and you're sitting down with a company to sell them on the idea and they buy off on it. Uh, what's the next step from there? So you're talking about licensing right now, not about risability. No, we could talk about either. You know, with licensing, obviously the company that you sell the license to is just going to take on the manufacturing aspect of it. Um, but but what yeah. if it's a product that you've developed yourself, like the ProRise? Well, the ProRise. Then what what I do is um, uh, I actually open up a, co a corporation, and um, in this particular case, um, we wanted to take it as far as we could. 
And we had um, met some great people in the uh, uh, logistics world. And they had come to visit us because we, we wanted to line up all of our, our sources of, you know, all of our vendors and such. And they saw what we were doing. They said, my God, you know, there's a huge need for this product. Well, they met with a, a factory that they do a lot of business with in uh, China and uh, just outside of Hong Kong. And what ended up happening was something we didn't really even ask for. They basically came back and said, look, we will provide initial fulfillment and we will do the tooling and get you the early, you know, you know, for a certain number of uh, delivery of, of actual product and we will do it at our expense, but you know, we will, you know, it's like an investment. So that's pretty amazing. I've know. never heard of that to be honest, not, not in China. Well, anyway, we never, people weren't going after yeah. it. It was just something that came up. So basically um, uh, they've been great people to work with. And we just recently, like week before last, we now have inventory in a fact in a uh, warehouse in North of LA which uh, this is a, a company that uh, specializes in uh, working with the infomercial world. So in our case, we actually have everything up to including design, engineering, prototypes, tooling, and inventory. That's really exciting. When you were going through this process to find a manufacturer, did you, uh, you know, there's this debate about uh, made local versus made abroad. And, you know, my take on it is I would love to make it local if the market supports it. But most, the, most of the yeah. time, the costs and especially on some of the products that I've worked on recently could be 5x or 4x of what it costs in China, just because, you know, China has subsidized material costs and all sorts of things that make it a lot cheaper. So can you talk about some of that? Yeah, costs in China are going up. And as they do, and you've got three weeks on the water to get to California, sure. uh, you factor that all in. And we're starting to talk to companies um, uh, that do work in North America, but just south of the border. Mm -hmm. You know, being in San Diego County, we're not that far from the Mexico border. And there are more factories popping up that, that can do good work. And once you factor in shipping costs, um, they claim they can get pretty close. So we're actually testing that right now because some of the products that we've created around the ProRise, um, we've actually met, for instance, with the United States Veterans Administration. They saw the product, they liked it, and they said, could you turn this into a chair? Mm, we said, nice. yeah. <laughs> and um, the problem is, is that if the product is manufactured in a country that's not a member of the World Trade, or Trade or Organization, the U.S. government can't buy it. And in addition to, uh, you know, people at home, a big part of our market for these products is going to be hospitals, nursing homes, the U.S. government, uh, you know, companies that, that actually are caregiving companies that go to your home. But especially the U.S. government, you need to be from a WTO-based company. And for that, reasons, or for that reason, we're looking at uh, uh, North America as well. Because uh, we we really like to serve those those markets, right? Absolutely. Do you find that you might be creating a different version of product for the government versus what the consumer sees, or do you think it'd be just one product down the? I, I think there can be some that are the same. I think there'll be others that are actually different. That's very exciting. So I've, I guess you've made trips down south to check out the factories yourself and kind of see the type of work that they do. 
I have in the past. What I'm doing right now is working with a company that specializes in doing that for me. Uh, they have sources of manufactured north and south of the border. And um, um, we're kind of test driving the relationship right now uh, to see how it works. And so actually, we're there's a product that we have licensed that uh, should be on TV this coming year. And we're actually having it cost by these people uh, north and south of the border, as well as in um, China. Oh, that's very exciting. So that takes a lot of legwork out. I've been the one that's been chasing all the different manufacturers and you can get into yeah. you know dozens of different manufacturers all asking you questions about every detail on the design, and it can definitely bog you down. Definitely. And to have a prototype that you can share helps enormously. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I insist that whoever we're working with can read engineering drawings or, or solid computer files. Because yep. if they don't, my, my confidence goes down a bit. Uh, China in the past has been famous We've sent in the past, we'll send a prototype that is we've made modifications to in the drawings. And what comes back is the old prototype, not the revised design. Yeah, because they never looked uh, at the revi- revised set of drawings. They never looked at the drawings. They just copied the, the model. And so that's been a problem. We've even had, we had a, a very well-known product on the market, um, sold in excess of half a billion dollars globally. Wow. Um, and it actually had rollers that rolled on a track. <clears throat> and the first prototype that China sent us, the wheels were welded on at right angles to the track. So instead of rolling, <laughs> they had to skid along the track. <laughs> right. Obviously, none of the engineers in China ever got on the thing and tried right, it. Right, right. And we, we have multiple stories like that. That said, there are good factories over there. You just have to find them. Yeah, I have to say both the factories that I'm using now uh, read manufacturing drawings well and – the third-party QA has improved a lot too. In other words, you can hire a company that you pay a day rate, usually three to four hundred dollars a day, and they will come in and run a gamut of tests for you uh, based on the plan that you put out. And so you know, it gives you that additional, um, you know, the, the sense of confidence that, that you know your product's going to work, and you can test the first product off the line and make any corrections just in case. That is vital. I mean, that's what our um, logistics company is doing for us. They actually send their QC person over there. Um, let me tell you a story about a man I met with as we were trying to fund this. And he um, he's from Mexico, uh, but lives in California. And he's a shoe manufacturer. <clears throat> and he told me a story about um, uh, having a whole container of shoes come in uh, to the port of Los Angeles. And they're all left feet. <laughs> there were no right-footed shoes in the order. Wow. So, you know, if you don't have someone looking, you know, taking care of you, it's it can be a huge, huge problem. Yeah, especially since you've already paid for the, you know, the freight to get it to you. That's and a right. lot of the companies and I think what some people don't know is in the U.S. there's this um, this the culture with a lot of the manufacturers that will make it right. So if it doesn't come out right, they're going to do something to maybe rework it or fix it and to, to make you whole. In China, I think because the margins are so slim it's very difficult for them to make you whole the they're the best that they can do is say hey we will give you x percent off your next order which doesn't really help you like you said if you have a bunch of left shoes that showed up <laughs> yeah it's true i think there's other things i that there is a huge uh middle class and and wealthy class in china i mean so they're not not all their margins are as as lean as they used to be <clears throat> but and I have to say the factory I'm with have been great to work with. Um, 
the fellow we, we actually deal with, um, he's Chinese, but he lived in San Diego County from like junior high till I think through college. So he's wonderful to work with. And I, I, I have, I feel very comfortable with them, but I, I've heard some horror stories about, you know, companies that are going back to their, their, their old factories and the factories kind of the attitude is we kind of don't need you Americans anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a huge market here and we've made a lot of money and, you know, what have you guys done for us recently? And, and to be honest, a lot of the American companies really ground these guys down for a long time, but uh, the tables are kind of getting turned a little bit. Yeah, and I definitely see that on some of the high-tech or some of the harder-to-machine components, your steel alloys and things like that that are very difficult uh, to to make that you need you know, specialized tooling and things like that. Uh, U.S. manufacturers still have a, a leg up when it comes to those types of parts. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've talked about manufacturing and QA a bit. Um, what do you think is the next step? When do you start your marketing for a product? You know, when do you reach out to some of your test group that you used early on to say, Hey, we're, we're coming up to the market, you know, to all your friends. <laughs> we don't have a large e, e following. Uh, I, my personally don't even have Facebook. Mm -hmm. We actually have a company that is handling that for us. And we have another company that handles our website for us. What we have done is we've actually signed a distribution contract with a $4 billion company back East. But we're, so we're going to be doing traditional marketing. We're going to have reps. We're going to have e-commerce. Uh, and what we're doing right now is we're still having meetings with companies about um, uh, funding the infomercials because with the infomercial, we can grow the company in months as opposed to years. I mean, it's just, it's astonishing how fast you can grow a company. So we are just where we're starting to, to um, offer product and, we have all our, we, like I said, we only recently had our inventory here in California. So we're putting the finishing touches on, like our website is transactional now and um, a number of things like that, which fortunately my CEO and marketing guy have to take care of because, you know, I've got my hands full. I probably have the next maybe five products in the shop right now at different stages of, of development of, of prototype and, and engineering. So I'm, my hands are really full. So, but our next point, our next step is, is getting funding for marketing. And I wish we had started that earlier. Uh, we had a couple of companies that said that they were on deck. They were going to be there for us when we were ready. And the, the truth is they, they weren't there when we expected them to be, or in some, you know, you even have situations where the deal changes, but you're ready to go, but now we want this kind of thing. So um, I've had to learn a big lesson that, you go out for funding as early as you can, and you keep meeting with people until someone transfers the money into your bank account. <laughs> right. You don't count anything as done. No. And that, that, that was very foolish on my part. But I've never – actually, I've never had to raise funds before. I've always done it by myself. And um, you know, this is not for the weak-hearted out there. I mean, last big hit I had, we got our first big royalty check right after my wife told me, we just used up our last credit line and our last credit card. Jeez. So, you know, this is not for everybody. <laughs> this can wear you down. Well, but for me, for me to have a situation where I don't have to ask anyone's permission to produce a product, I don't have to ask anyone's permission to do the best job I can. I have total creative independence. And financially, when it works, 
the financial independence, it really, it really changes your life. Well, and you're still connected to the products that you design. And to me, that's the whole reason that I got into engineering is because I love building and creating and seeing uh, your creations change the world in a small piece at a time, so to speak. Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, my actually, my first job offer was from General Motors. And, um, you know, I could have spent my creative life, you know, putting fins on Cadillacs to make them sell. <laughs> certainly, I've done my share of that type of thing. But the idea that I'm making, I'm creating products that actually make a difference in people's lives, I know it sounds corny, um, but it is nice. Yeah, you have to connect to that. You know, recently, the company that I worked for went out of business because of the recession that we have here in Houston. And so now I have this opportunity where I've got the six months to kind of decide what I want to do. And it's almost... Uh, the silence is deafening in a way because I've the, my whole life I've I've worked for corporations and helping them build products and take them to market and I've took definitely took jobs because of the financial independence that I was seeking and maybe less so what I really believed in my gut or what I really wanted to do and uh, now that I have that opportunity it's uh, I mean it's just amazing and but but it's also really difficult because. I've never really sat down to say, hey, this is what uh, these are the types of products that I want to build for myself or, you know, to, to share with the world. It's I've had to do, definitely do some soul searching with that. Well, as soon as we get funding, we need an engineer. Are you willing to work, move to California? <laughs> you know, I, I would love to. You know, you talked about finances. I think one of the unsexy tips that I've told people is that you definitely have to live below your means. My, my wife and I paid off our house here uh, a while back, and that's basically what's been able to give me this opportunity to work six months on or or more on whatever I want to do without us being feeling the pressure to go back into work. Yeah, no, it can be really stressful. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've used up savings and IRAs and, you know, cashed in uh, life insurance, parts of my life insurance policy. Jeez. So, you know, it's, you know, it, it is, something you really need to take seriously. But I've seen the other side of the, the fence and I think I've gotten kind of greeted and greedy in that I, I want to just have the best life I can have. And, you know, if I can have the security and the creative freedom, it's just, I mean, but we get up in the morning and we say, what are we creating today? I mean, you just yep. can't beat that if you're a designer. No, that's awesome. Living the dream for sure. <laughs> well, along those lines, can you give, everybody a, a tip if they're kind of struggling taking their own product to market they might not even be a designer and they have this idea that they've been sitting on you know maybe uh, uh, something they've been playing around with for a few years and they just haven't been able to take that next step or they might be a small business owner and they they don't have a designer or engineer or anybody technical on staff what kind of advice would you give them to help them take that yeah there are a lot of things you can do um the first is, I mean, we used to get people who are coming in. Mostly we work with big corporations when we we're, we we're consulting. But we get people coming in with these ideas they've had for 20 years. And, you know, we do like a little bit of searching. We say, well, you know, there, there are three products just like this on the market already. They say, oh, I've never seen one. I said, well, you need to look. So before you spend a lot of time doing anything, you need to go on to the patent search or even Google search. They have a great patent search. And make sure your idea isn't, isn't out there already. And don't just check the patent office. Go online. Go to China. I found a product in China once that I couldn't find anywhere else. And it saved me a lot of work because it was basically a, a, a 
cell phone related product that we thought, oh, we're going to make a fortune. And we found it in China. And it wasn't patented, but being that it was part of the public domain, we couldn't get a patent on it sure. at that point. So there's a whole list of things that they can do. Um, uh, I mean, I, I've got a book about this. I'm not here to flog a book, but we actually wrote a book just to kind of help people. And um, uh, there's a whole list of things that, that they should do. But if they, they've got a clear road to move forward in terms of uh, intellectual property, there, there are things they can do. Uh, having been a, a college professor for quite a few years, you know, you can go to a great university. It's got a great engineering or design department. And you can get students to help you for equity or, you know, little pay or there are things you can do. You can trade services. Uh, so you're not totally left without resources. There are things you can do. Um, I would say that SCORE from a business standpoint is a great asset. You've got all these retired executives who are willing to give their time and their expertise. So there are inventors forums that are quite helpful. Yep. Uh, I just did a demonstration at one uh, just a couple weeks ago. I think they're enormously helpful. One thing I would not do are these inventor resources that you see on TV that are going to help you get your idea on in the, on the market. Run the other <laughs> way. Don't walk. Run. Uh, they are, in my experience, hardly ever successful. They're going to charge you for a lot of different things. And, um, uh, you know, my personal feeling is that you absolutely want to avoid those uh, those companies that are in the business of helping struggling inventors. Robson, great. Thanks for that advice. Uh, if people wanted to find out more about your company or maybe get a pro rise for themselves or somebody in their family, where could they go? Oh, the Riseability website for the ProRise, the first product, is at www.tryprorise.com, which is T-R-Y-P-R-O-R-I-S-E.com. Awesome. And if they had any questions, can they reach out to you somehow? Yes. Um, we have a, uh, uh, a website, uh, as I mentioned, but if they wanted to contact Splain Design Associates, um, we have an email address of uh, uh, splaindesign at gmail.com. Perfect. Well, Robson, thanks again for coming on the show. It was really awesome to see how a product gets uh, to, you know, taken from idea to market from a designer's perspective. So really appreciate the opportunity to geek out with you and talk about some, uh, some specifics. Thanks again for coming on the show. I appreciate your having me. And... That concludes today's episode. Thank you for joining me. If you have any questions or comments, as always, I've put all the links that we've covered under the show notes posted on theproductstartup.com slash episode 25. Join me next week as I speak with Tanya Heath. She's the creator of a multi-height shoe with removable heels. She got her idea on her first day at work in a Paris management consultancy where she was taunted by her colleagues because she changed from flats to heels at work. So tune in next week to hear that episode. Lastly, I'd like to thank everybody that has subscribed to the show by hitting the subscribe button in iTunes or in your favorite podcasting app. If you haven't done so already, it's the best way to be notified of new releases within hours of the episode going live.
So thanks again for listening, everybody, and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast with your host, Philip Valitza. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit theproductstartup.com. Your guide to getting there. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast, the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the first firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product businesses. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.